Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, and you can find that in your pew Bible on page 812. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here or there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good catch. <laughs> Thank you, Rory. Thank you, Henry. Well, what's amazing is the occasion of, for a baptism allows me to already share the gospel with you. And, and that was where I was going to start. And the reason for that, which I don't have to do now because I've, we did it in the context of the sacrament, is we've been staying in the same scripture for the last several weeks. And I hope we're at the place where not only the scripture is starting to get inside of us, Paul's words, as we hear them week after week, but I also hope we're starting to move from a place of maybe surprise or disorientation as this was new for us to a place where we're, they were starting to get it, where it's starting to really sink in. And Drew masterfully talked about the role of the evangelist. And to me, I think one way to tell if you're getting it is if you understand that that role is not just for a few, but for all of us, that to ask yourself, can, do I know what the gospel is? If someone were to ask, if I was provoked by God to share it, could I share the gospel? What would I say? And would it be the full gospel, as we've talked about? Not half, but all of the gospel. You heard it proclaimed. We saw it enacted through the sacrament of baptism. It's about a covenant and about a kingdom. It's about relationship with God, our primary, our foundational relationship and the kingdom. This work that God is doing to transform not only our individual lives, but this world to bring his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. It is encapsulated in the two greatest statements that Jesus made. When people were caught up in the law, the rules and the regulations, when they were missing the relationship because of the rules, and someone said, what's it all about? How do you summarize all of it? Jesus said, it's this simple, and it's this deep. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love God with everything you have. That's the starting point. That's everything. And then out of that love for God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. The great commandment. That's what it's all about. That's covenant. That's the relationship. That's the promise. But then as Jesus had accomplished his victory on the cross and through an empty tomb as he was about to ascend to heaven to be with the Father, Jesus gave us 
what we call the Great Commission. He said it's not just about you. It's not just about us. It's about the world. Therefore, go. Go and teach and tell others what I have taught you, what I've commanded you. Go and baptize them in their true identity, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help them to know who they are and whose they are and make disciples. Jesus didn't say make believers. He said make disciples. Be transformed by the Spirit that is coming that I'm going to give to you, but be agents of transformation so that others may experience the gift of grace and of salvation. And what Paul gives us here, and there's other places in the New Testament where we have it, is how does this come together? How does this happen in our lives? Why is it not happening in the church? Because we've lost sight of the roadmap. And we've talked about in these last few weeks that God's intention in bringing us into relationship with him, in making us a part of his kingdom, is that everyone would be involved. That's what Paul addresses here in Ephesians 4. Everyone's involved. Not just leaders, not just super Christians. Everyone is involved. There are no spectators in the church. And we need to hear that again and again because we live in a time where there are a lot of people who are spectators in the church, but there are no spectators in the body of Christ. And there aren't believers in the church, not just believers What there are are disciples. We are all disciples together. In many ways, as we've talked about what's happened, a way to bring this together is that this is, Jesus has come to reawaken our spiritual DNA. And that's what Paul is outlining here. Each one of us, grace has been given. We, Paul will write in another letter that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. I want you to hold that intention with the idea that we are created in the image of God. So what's happening here is God, in clearing away all the obstacles and the chaos, is trying to help us to see who we truly are. But it's not like he gives us a picture of who we truly are and says, live up to that. He says, this is who you truly are, and I'm going to come alongside you. I am going to come within you, and I am going to be the one who transforms you into who you were meant to be. That's why when we pray for David, we pray that he would grow into his destiny. As a man of God, that's not a prayer for David's own strength. That's a prayer for David to be in cooperation, to submit to the power of God that's at work in him through Christ. And that's a power that's at work in all of us, an authority and power. And that's what Paul is drawing out to us, that to each one of us, grace has been given. And how do we live into our identity? Through five roles. Apostle. Prophet. Evangelist. Pastor. And teacher. And these five roles are roles that are the perfect reflection of Christ. Jesus was perfect in all five of these roles. And in being conformed to the image of Christ, we are being perfected in all five of these roles. It doesn't happen by our own strength. It doesn't happen by our own resources. It happens by God at work within us. We all have, as we've talked about, a base ministry. And that means out of these five ministries, there's one that we're just hardwired with. It's in our blood. We can't help but do it. We gravitate towards it. We may even have gravitated towards it in a secular way before we even knew Christ, before we even came into the body of Christ. And it's out of that strength, that base ministry, that God also grows us into the other four. And how that happens is through phases in our lives, experiences, relationships in which God stretches us and grows us into those other roles in which Christ was perfect. And one of the most powerful things I want you to see when you look at that is not to see five circles, but to understand the end goal, the trajectory of God in Christ is that there's only one circle. 
that God's desire for each one of us, again, not just leaders, not just the spiritually elite, is that we would all come into the fullness of Christ, the fullness of these five roles. And as we've talked about, part of what makes this challenging for us to embrace, maybe even radical, is if we've engaged in any sense of empowerment within the church, we've thought small rather than big. And what we've done is we've talked about the spiritual gifts in the church. And the spiritual gifts are valid. They're in scripture. They're there. The spiritual gifts are real. But our God doesn't just say, here's a toolbox. Take an inventory and then grab what tool best suits you. As we've talked about, the tools are real, the gifts are real, but part of the reason why we've experienced so much division and so much abuse within the church is because for many of us, that's the only way we understand it, is that there's this giant toolbox that we just get an inventory and we grab a tool and then we go to work. But if you'll remember a couple weeks back, and it's not just me, we're dangerous when all we have is just a tool. (laughs) What helps us with here with Ephesians 4 is the roles shape how we use the tools. The role, the base ministry that we have, the phase that we're in shapes the spiritual gifts that God gives us. This together, all of this together, the five roles, the spiritual gifts as tools, this defines a healthy body. This is the healthy body of Christ. And as Drew elaborated last week, this is what this, this health is what is an immunization against the, the two most common ways of infection within the church. This functioning of the body, this healthy functioning, is preventative medicine against two rampant causes of infection within the body that many of us are very familiar with, that Paul wrote about centuries ago, one of them being spiritual infancy. And as Drew talked about quite succinctly, it's the idea that we can grow older without maturing in Christ. There are some of us here today of varying ages, and this is a very disturbing thing to me, and it's more and more rampant in the church. We're older. We can say I've been a Christian for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, but whatever our years of being a Christian, we're still operating out of what I like to call a Sunday school faith. And what I mean by that is the primary shaping and forming of our faith, our theology, our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus came at Sunday school. And we've never grown out of that. Flannel boards. And, there's, and they're valuable when you're a child, but th- where it's, it's an uncomfortable silence or laughter is to think that you're a 30, 40, 50, 60, 70-year-old and you still only have a Sunday school faith. We're called to mature in Christ, to stretch, to grow. The healthy functioning of the body, when all five roles individually and corporately are celebrated and are in motion, that prevents us from spiritual immaturity, spiritual infancy. But the other hazard in the church that this is preventive medicine against, which has been rampant before and is rampant today, is being tossed back and forth by every wind of teaching and doctrine. And as Drew talked about last week, this is the idea that in the church, we have a lot of what I like to call faddish theology. Theology of the week or theology of the year. Theology that's not based on scripture, our understanding of God and who we are in God, not based upon God's word, but based upon what feels good, what's convenient, And this is another reason this idea of of being tossed to and throw has also led to a lot of spiritual manipulation and abuse. And where this has happened in the church is when we allow ourselves to become spectators rather than live into our five roles, individually and corporately, when we just simply basically delegate authority and power to the few, this is where we fall victim to celebrities and charismatic pastors 
This is where we say, you know what? I don't have the education. I didn't go to school. I'm not as holy as you are. You have a better connect li direct line to God. You don't have no, have no idea how often I hear that. And it disturbs me every time I hear it. Don't put that on me. Don't put it on me. But there are others who say, put it on me. And we do. And then we turn around and suddenly we find ourselves manipulated spiritually, abused. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm given a harsh word here. But as much as we need to be angry at those people who choose to do that, who do that, we need to take a look in the mirror that we enabled them to do that. We get all torch, you know, torches and pitchforks for the pastors that let us down, the teachers and preachers who let us down. But where is the responsibility to say we allowed that to happen? Because we were not living out of the roles that we have been called to in Christ. Five roles. Apostle. Pastor, or apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Apostle, just by way of, just again, quick summary. The one who is sent, apostles, pioneers, entrepreneurs. This is the most forgotten role in the church because many of us don't like to go forward. We like to stay where we are, but the apostles are always looking at where God is on the move, where the spirit moves ahead of us. We have those who, that's their base ministry, and some of us are often called to be apostles, to go where no one has gone before. Then we have prophets. If apostles are the most forgotten role in the church, prophets, as we've heard about, are the least understood role in the church. Prophets are provocateurs. They're questioners. They're continually being sensitive in the word and in the spirit to where is God speaking in the midst of what's going on? Where is God present in the midst of where we're going? And what you're starting to see as we define these roles is how they overlap. The apostle can be saying, God's out ahead of us. God's calling us here. But the prophet in, in tandem is saying, okay, but is that God? Or is that us trying to get ahead of God? Is, where is God speaking in the midst of all the ideas that we have right here in this present moment? Where is God at work? That's the prophet, the one who listens. And Drew talked about the evangelist, the one who recruits. The evangelist is the communicator or the storyteller who knows the story and is so excited about it they gravitate, evangelists gravitate towards non-Christians because they don't know the news. You, you tell news to people who don't know it. You tell people who haven't heard it's news, and for them, the story is news. And it's not just any news, it's the best news of all. And the evangelist is the least used role in the church. Isn't there an irony that all of us sit here and we sit here because we believe the story, we say we do, we, ba we put our lives on this story, and yet the number one fear among Christians is telling anybody about it. Does anyone, does that strike anybody as odd? The evangelists are like, no, no, if this is news and it's the best news of all, we got to tell people. And now we come to the pastor, the one who nurtures. Pastors are humanizers. They're people motivators. The pastor is the most used role in the church, the church today. Most used role in the church today. But it also has the distinction in my mind of being the most abused role in the church today. Pastor. The word comes from this idea of shepherd. Pastor is a shepherd. It's a great way to image. Pastor is a shepherd. And the two, two things I want you to hold up when you think of a, the pastoral role is pastors are about wholeness and holiness. Pastors are about wholeness. They are about the emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical well-being of the individual and the community. The wholeness, the shalom of the person in the community. And if you think about it, that's covenant language. They're very much focused about the healthy relationship of a person and of people together. Wholeness, pastors very focused on that, but also holiness. 
pastor is focused on holiness, this is the idea that we practice what we preach, that we embody our health, meaning we don't, we don't just you know, have it all here, but we actually, there's no inconsistency between what we say and what we do. And this is very much kingdom language, isn't it? It's about the responsibility. Okay, if you're in this relationship, then be responsible to that relationship. So pastors are focused on wholeness and holiness, and there's three primary ways in which uh, the pastoral role meets those two, two focuses. The first is pastors are about nurturing. You think about a shepherd, this works. Pastors nurture, and what I mean by that is pastors are regularly doing a checkup of the individual and of the community. They're always doing a pulse check. They're always checking. Think about a shepherd that has a flock of sheep. A shepherd will regularly take the flock and check for wounds, check for open sores, check for damage. And the, the pastor does that within the individual and the community. Hold those intention, the person and the community, because you want to identify wounds and sores and clean and dress them before what? They're infected. Because when infection comes, it spreads through the individual, through the community. And if infection isn't caught in time or if it's left, led to run rampant, things die. People die. So pastors nurture by continually doing regular health checks. And that can be personally, but also corporately. Pastors, the second thing that they do is they're about direction. Pastors offer regular counsel. Again, to individuals and to the community, they offer regular counsel because sheep, and we are all sheep, all of us are sheep. Sheep, as you know, if you spend any time around them, have a tendency to not always go in the same direction. And so pastors provide continual counsel by way of course correction, reorientation. And let me tell you, after spending a week with eighth graders, I know what that's all about. Okay, I'm going to go, no, no, you need to stay with the group. No, no, I'm going to go over here. Okay, you need to go in two so no one gets lost. Where's your buddy? Well, I left them, and then you're not with your buddy, so they're going to get lost. <laughs> That's pastoring. Okay, we stick together. And the, the challenge about this idea of direction, think again for a shepherd, is that course correction, that reorientation has to be gentle, but it also has to be firm. No, 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 no. No. We're going this way. And the reason why it needs to be gentle but firm, and I know I'm, I'm telling tales in church here, is that more often than not, sheep don't get lost because they don't know which way to go. Sheep get lost because they don't want to go where they're supposed to go. <laughs> it's not a matter of I don't know I'm supposed to go this way. It's I don't want to go this way. And pastors are like, okay, this is the way we're going. Got to go this way. So nurturing, direction, and last one, protection. Pastors are providing regular scouting. They're continually looking on the horizon. They're continually looking around the room because they're looking for predators. Pastors are the ones who are always saying, is everyone accounted for, making a head count. Pastors are the ones who are always saying, is this the safest place, the best vantage point where I can see everyone? Is this the best spot for us to be in? Because pastors are ultra sensitive to the idea that there are predators all around. People, as Jesus says, who will rob and steal and kill. And so pastors are sensitive to protecting the flock. So much so, pastors, the pastor has such a heart in this role. We have such a heart for those around us that we're actually so sensitive we're willing to even sacrifice ourselves. To put ourselves in front of the attack. To put ourselves in front of the obstacle so that the, the rest of the flock is protected. And it's this kind of radical protection where Jesus tells a parable about the shepherd who leaves 99 for the sake of the one. They'll be fine. I'm staying with you so you can get back to the 99. 
That's pastoring, protection. Nurturing, direction, protection. You know, a great way to put this together, when you think of the pastoral role, pastors are so close to the ground, they smell like the sheep. That's a great way to think, again, of a pastor. Because they're in it, they're in the thick of it, they're willing to get their hands dirty. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, we're going, and pastor's like, yeah, but I'm in the trenches. I know what, where we are. I know what we're capable of. I know how God's at work in the midst of this community or the, in the midst of this person's life. Pastors are in the trenches. Another way to think of this, remember I gave you a, a way to remember the five-fold ministry with the hand. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Which finger is the pastor? The ring finger. Hold on to that. It's the ring finger, yeah, because pastors marry people. <laughs> but it's the ring finger because broader than the professional view of a pastor, but thinking of all of us as pastors, in the pastoral role, the pastoral role is about marrying the body to Christ. The pastoral role is about making sure we're being faithful to Christ and, and by extension, to each other in Christ. In many ways, the pastor is often called in the, in the five roles the heart of the body. And that's also significant with the ring finger because the one thing about the ring finger is the ring finger is the one finger on your hand that has an, an artery that connects directly to the heart. Think of that when you think again of the pastoral role. Let's talk about biblical examples that we can look at. Well, obviously there's Jesus. One of the primary ways that Jesus spoke of himself, and he was perfect in all five, but he often talked about himself being the good shepherd. Told us parables, stories of, again, the, the, the means of understanding what he was doing was through shepherding. David is clearly a biblical example of shepherding. And I, what I love about David is, we, you know, sometimes, not in all of them, but we have lots of artwork with David as a shepherd, and that's like sort of the tranquil, serene part of his life. You know, you see David with the harp, and he's by the lambs. And this is long before he becomes king. And we forget the fact that as a shepherd, you know, he had predators. He, like, wrestled a lion and stuff. That's why Saul maybe half-heartedly said, okay, maybe you can beat Goliath. You know, shepherding is not all, la, la, la. <laughs> David is an example of that willingness to sacrifice yourself, that willingness to nurture and care for your sheep. You see the beginnings of the king that he will be in how he is as a shepherd. Another example, probably not one that pops in your mind, is Barnabas. Barnabas served in this pastoral role. Barnabas was a pastor to Paul. When Paul was kind of getting reoriented after his encounter with Christ and people were not really sure about Paul, Barnabas takes Paul under his wing, cares for him. And even more significantly, Barnabas pastors Paul and John Mark. Remember when John Mark bails? And you remember what Paul's reaction is? John Mark bails on the mission trip, and Paul says, well, he ain't coming with us anymore. We're done with him. Barnabas is a pastor and says, look, we can't leave John Mark behind. We've got to bring him along. We don't just abandon him. And Paul's like, well, he's not going where I'm going. And even though they split, what you get in Scripture is they split amicably. Barnabas was very, very pastoral in ministering to Paul, but at the same time not abandoning John Mark. It's a great example of, again, the pastoral role. How about some contemporary examples? Some secular examples. Top, I don't know, whatever, top corner, Charles Schultz, Peanuts. Charles Schultz came from a Christian background, but very much served in this pastoral role for us as a people, in that his cartoons, while cute and funny, also had that nurturing quality about them. Also had that directional quality about them. He was very, very subtly would comment on things that were going on in our culture, things that were going on in our world. Very protective at times of traditions within our country. And a lot of that was informed by his faith, being very pastoral through something that we wouldn't normally associate with, with pastoral ministry, a comic. 
But again, through the words of Linus and Lucy and Charlie Brown, a lot of wisdom, a lot of care and comfort, and a lot of accountability too. Mr. Rogers, Presbyterian minister, but again, very much a pastor. As a kid, you know, he very much nurtures and directs, but even when you become an adult, I defy you to put on Mr. Rogers and not, and not be able to, to turn away. You're 30 years old and you're like, I just could watch this guy for hours. <laughs> and there's just something very, very, again, very, very caring, putting on his sweater, putting on his shoes, inviting you into his home. But at the same time, also this resolve of directing you with that voice that only Mr. Rogers has about, you are a good friend, aren't you? You wouldn't, I wouldn't like a friend who did that, would you? I say, I can't even do it justice. <laughs> and then there's Oprah. I'm not a huge Oprah fan, but from a secular standpoint, she is in many ways viewed, right, wrong, or indifferent, secularly as a pastor. Several magazines have called her America's pastor. Again, look at it. What's Oprah reading? What, what doctor does Oprah say to go to? What, Oprah is seen as sort of caring for the average person in America. Now, again, I'm not agreeing with all of it, but showing you that role secularly. In the Christian community, two more examples. Top person, if you don't know who that is, Henry Nouwen. Catholic priest, if you've never read anything by Henry Nouwen, I strongly recommend you read some of his books. He was a Catholic priest who left a very uh, great position at Notre Dame to go and minister to the mentally challenged and disabled. And part of why he did that is, again, this heart for really having a heart for wondering those who are mentally challenged, disabled in any way, how do they come to the full, how do they mature in Christ? How do they come to understand the gospel? and wanted to minister to that community. If you read any of his writings, I believe that God worked through him powerfully in the pastoral role, but what's fascinating, and this is how God works, he was probably ministered to more by the community than God used him. But a great example in his writings, of, as you read it, it's very pa he will pastor you through his writings. And that's also why I have Eugene Peterson up there. Eugene Peterson is one of my pastors. He serves that role for me. He created the translation, The Message. He's written several books, and I'll tell you briefly why I have him up there. Because we live at a time, and I'm not trying to, to put down anybody, I'm just stating a more general thing. We have so many celebrity pastors. We got pastors that you know, I could name them, you'd know who they are. Their podcasts get all kinds of hits, they have lots of books, and, and then guess what the common denominator is? They have huge, huge churches. They, on television, they have CD sets you can order, DVDs, whatever. And I'm not putting down God working through them at all. But to me, there's something troubling about that, that the, the, part of the pastoring part is removed from that. When it all becomes about the next book or the next conference you're going to speak at. Many of these pastors, some who I know, have left their churches for the sake of ministering to the wider community through tours. And again, I, I see some tension there. But Eugene Peterson is a pastor to me because he is someone in the thick of it. He doesn't always speak at conferences. He's written lots of books. But you wouldn't know what church he pastored. And if you went to go see it, you'd go, this is it? And it wasn't exactly a successful church in the ways that we often define it. But he faithfully ministered, and the things that he writes and his ministry come out of that practicality of not the next big thing or not the, the you know, bigger is better, but more the getting your hands dirty, smelling like sheep, being in the trenches of it. That's the pastoral role. And then the other example I would give you, I'm not going to be vain enough to put a picture, is me. Um, wouldn't that be something? No, really, oh, Henry. <laughs> I, there's a reason why I, I, I'm, I'm pointing to myself. Some of you know my, my story that pastoring was not a first career, um, first career for me. 
I was in business management, which moved later to human resources. I, I want to just connect two things. I've told parts of the story, but I don't want to tell everything. What I, the two pieces I want to hold together for you are early on, I had another uh, pastor who offered a prophetic word saying, I think you need to consider a call to pastoral ministry. Some of you have heard this story. At the time, I'd just gotten married. I was in the thick of my career, and I flipped out I, and, and, and didn't know what to do with it. Got really good counsel <laughs> to not do anything and let God do. Now, project years later, that always in the back of my mind, that what does that look like? What does that mean? I was working for AMC Theaters. I was living in Kansas City with Beth. Um, they were in the midst of expansion. This is when they were building those megaplexes, 20, 25 screens, um, in the height of it. But I was a part of the training and the opening of these theaters as it, was, as it was expanding. And there came a point in my time there where all of a sudden AMC realized that they had a financial problem, that they were, they were, gonna be, they were losing money. And so I was a part of a higher level conversation about what to do in response to that reality. And there were basically two positions. One was there were building commitments we had made, but we hadn't broke ground to pull back and not to do those building commitments. The other was to cut back our staff and our training that was done. Now, I was in human resources, and I was the part of the argument that said that that was not to do that. We can't cut our staff. We can't cut our training, especially for making bigger theaters, because one of the things that we were known for was our customer service. And one of the things that was great about the company was the culture that was there because of that. The, just the, again, the, the investment we made in our people. And I was a part of that argument, and I said, short term, this makes a lot of sense, but long term, this it was a sort of a prophetic word, this is going to be a mistake. Don't do it. I was on the losing end of the argument. Now, here's the thing, and it's the first time this happened to me in my career at that time. When the decision was made to continue to build but to cut our staff, it's sort of like a left brain, right brain thing. There's a part of me that totally got it. I mean, the numbers didn't lie. I got it from a business standpoint. It, just, it, was, it was smart business. I don't know if it was good business, but it was smart business. And I totally got it. But for the first time, even though I got it on one level, I was, there was this disquiet. This, I was just not content in my soul. I mean, I, I, I'm a very passionate person, as you know, and there were several meetings where I would really get fired up. People were like, dude, look, the numbers don't lie. This is the balance sheet, man. You know, when there's no company. And I knew that on one level. But on another level, I just could, could understand, I just at a deep level sense the change that it would make for the culture of our, of our, of our community. And it, what, dis, what disturbed me was I didn't know how to reconcile it. On the one hand, I knew that this was the decision that had been made, and this was the decision that was considered wise, but I couldn't let it go. And it was in the midst of that time that God opened the door, and suddenly that call several years ago of being a pastor started to, to make sense. Because I realized in that moment, and there was a lot more to go, that I couldn't continue on in the career that I was in. And I'm not saying this for all of you, I'm saying this for me. I couldn't continue on in the career that I was in because I cared more about people than I cared about money. Meaning I couldn't make the choices or live with them in that corporate environment that I would have to. I, I would end up hating myself. And that opened the door to where I am now. Now, I don't know if pastoral, pastor, pastor is my base ministry. As I've told you, I'm still sitting in that. But that was part of, a, again, showing you how you and your, in, a, a counselor, a human resources person, a care worker, you are in a pastoral role out in the world that can also translate into the community of Christ. Okay. To close out, as we always do, the, the balance between the immature and the mature pastor. Because this helps, I told you, it's the most used role in the church, but also the most abused. So to flesh that out. The pastor, the immature or experienced pastor, 
And this is not just true of the professional, but also of the layperson. When this role is immature or inexperienced, here is the way you can tell. An immature or inexperienced person serving in the pastoral role is first and foremost a people pleaser. Not a Christ pleaser, a people pleaser. And the way this plays out in the pastoral role in immaturity is a people pleaser will either offer the people sweets or bitter dregs. And what I mean by that is the immature, inexperienced pastor will give the people what they want. We want to make people happy. Everything's wonderful. Everything's great. There are no problems. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's all good. That's pastoring, people-pleasing for sweets. And then there are others who give the bitter dregs. You guys are scum. You're just so lucky God even looks at you. Yeah, you did great, but you got so much farther to go. There's just so much more to do. Now, some of us think, how is that attractive at all? But there are tons of people who love that, who love to get beat down. I mean, and there's a pastoring, anal- a parenting analogy in this of you're never good enough. For many people in the church, they find that very, very therapeutic. I got really beat up today, and so I feel closer to God because I really felt bad today. And then there's a whole other community that goes, you know, I felt really, really good today. I got the tingles and the spiritual goosebumps, so I feel really, really good today. Again, be wary of that because that tends to come out of a pace, place of people-pleasing rather than Christ-pleasing. What happens is when an immature, inexperienced pastor ministers in this way to please people, what happens is they need to be needed. And let me tell you, not just professionally, but in the pew, there are a lot of people serving in ministries that are not serving because they want to serve Christ, but they're serving because they need to be needed. And that is inherently dangerous. Because when you serve because you need to be needed, you're creating a relationship of codependency. And that's not Christian community. And the best example of that, or the the biggest warning sign, is if you're ever serving in a ministry, and basically in that ministry there's one person elevated above everybody else, if that person leaves, the whole ministry falls apart. We can't do it without them. They're they're the, the moon, the sun, and the stars. You know, there's a Messiah complex that can come in when you're immature and inexperienced as a pastor because it's very, very addictive to have people pleased by what you do. And there's two destinations when you're an immature or inexperienced pastor, if this is how you pastor. Two destinations. Either one, you burn out. And how many people have we seen, not just pastors of churches, but people in ministries who have served and served and served, and they've been serving to make other people happy, they've been serving to please other people, they've been serving because they need to be needed, and they finally burn out because they're not needed anymore, or they don't feel as valued anymore. It's rampant in the church. That's one destination. The other destination is we become parasites. Where literally, I manipulate you, guilt trip you, put stuff on you because I need to be needed. And if you leave, I, I, I act and even physically can manifest that I'm going to die, that I'm going to fall apart. And how often have we seen in ministries, ministries that have had their season that should have gone to pasture that haven't because for that person, it wasn't about the Lord. It was about, I need this. How many churches the pastor has stayed Because I I can't go anywhere else. I'm afraid to go anywhere else. This is, again, not healthy in the body. The mature or healthy pastor cares enough to confront. The mature or healthy pastor lives in this balance between courage, the courage to say things that oftentimes the flock doesn't want to hear, but at the same time to be comforting, to say, okay, this is hard stuff, or this is difficult, but you know what? We can get there. God is with us. We're in this together and the Lord is leading. It's the balance between resolve. You know, when you're a shepherd, when you're a pastor and there's trouble or hazard, the flock has this tendency to want to spread. 
And you have to be the one that says, we're sticking together. We're not going to fall apart. And in the midst of it, some sheep, you know, will straggle and will go away. And others will go, they're leaving. I'm going to leave too. And you hold the line. We're sticking. We're not going anywhere. There's this balance between resolve, but at the same time, patience. And trust me, again, from being on a week with eighth graders, how I translate that is, go ride on a bus for eight hours, and how many times can you hear, are we there yet? How much longer? And a pastor has that patience in the midst of, I know this is scary, I know this is different, but we'll, we can do this. Pastors see, they perceive the needs from the Lord, you've seen this model in the other roles, but then they come to the community, and through the community, they discern in the midst of all the needs, what are the true calls, the true needs from God, and the false alarms. Beloved, there are a lot of people that come to churches crying wolf. There are a lot of people who come to church because they don't necessarily want to heal, they just want to have attention. Jesus himself would say, do you want to get well? And one of the biggest hazards in the church, because we think it's doing someone a favor, is no, we don't want to leave anyone behind, but we won't ask the tough question of, does this person want to get well? And many churches suffer because we all jump off the mountain with everyone else, with the one person who's pulling the rope. Good pastoring is stopping and saying, I understand you're hurting, I understand you're in need, but do you want to get well? If you don't want to get well, then we're going to keep going. But if you want to get well, and people who are in recovery, you know what I'm talking about right now. 12 steps, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. But when we see, when we sift true needs versus false alarms, then together we, we care for those by being present with them. To close this out, in my time, I struggled because <laughs> ingrained in me when I became a pastor was, as I've talked about, I had to be all five of these roles at once, perfectly. And when I've realized that that's not true, what I've struggled with is, what's my job? What does it mean for me to be a pastor? And I've come to realize that it's not just something that I have to figure out for myself, but it's something that we do together. And one of the things that I, the tension I live in for a long time is, on the one hand, I felt like being a pastor meant being a cruise director. Pastor, you've come to our church, and it's an awesome church. We have great things going on. Don't change anything. Just keep our ship afloat and tell us where the cool programs are going on. And that's not the pastoral role. And on the other hand, I've at times as a pastor, not just this church and other churches, had to say things that were hard to say, that made people leave, and people said, you're a dictator. I can honestly tell you that it's never been my aim in life to be a dictator. That's not. And so for the longest time, I struggled Am I not meant to be a pastor? Because I don't feel like I can be a cruise director, but I don't feel like I know I don't want to be a dictator. And what helped me and what I want to give to you, for all of us as we reflect on that pastoral role for ourselves, is that we're called to be shepherds. And when that hit me one day, when the Lord hit me with that, I went to the place that I probably should have gone to in the first place, which is Psalm 23. All my life, I had memorized Psalm 23, and I had read Psalm 23 as a devotional psalm, a worshipful psalm to praise Jesus, to anticipate Christ. And it, it is absolutely that. But I'm going to read it to you now to close, and instead, I'm going to read it to you differently, because here's the thing. Jesus is the good shepherd, but if you understand everything that Paul's been teaching us, Christ has said that we are being conformed into his image, and amongst the other five roles, we are being made into the kind of shepherd that he is. We are being empowered to do the kind of pastoring that he does. For some of us, it's our base. It's our source of strength. For others of us, it may be a phase. So listen to Psalm 23, but instead of the object being Jesus, 
Here the object being us. It starts, the Lord is my shepherd, but here it as, thanks to the Lord, we are the shepherds. And because we are the shepherds in Christ, the people lack nothing. We have the honor of helping others to lie down in green pastures. We have the privilege at, through Christ at work in us to lead those around us beside quiet waters. We have the blessing of being the vessel to refresh other souls. We, through Christ at work in us, guide those around us along the right paths for his namesake. Even though those around us walk through the darkest valley, they can fear no evil because we are with them. Because through the rod and staff of Christ, the authority and power we are given by the Spirit, we are able to comfort them. We prepare a table before the people around us in the presence of their enemies. We are blessed to anoint the heads of others with oil, and so their cup overflows. Surely, the Lord's goodness and love will follow all of us all the days of our lives, and we together, as shepherds and sheep, will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.